Let us pray now as we enter into the service of the word. God, source of all light, by your word you give light to the soul. Pour out on us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that our hearts and minds may be open to your life-changing truth. Through Jesus our Lord. Amen. A reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 23 to 26. The word of the Lord. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born, because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jenny. If you uh, have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel according to Matthew. Uh, chapter 13, we'll pick up our reading in uh, verse uh, 44. If you've got a pew Bible in front of you, it's page 1519. In Matthew 13, Jesus has been telling a series of parables, giving people stories, uh, word pictures, images to help us understand what he's talking about, what he called the kingdom of heaven. And here he's going to give us four more pictures, four more images, and he's going to begin and end with the same theme, treasure. It's because that image is actually going to help us understand what he's saying in his other parables and is actually going to help us understand whether or not we've actually heard Jesus to begin with. It's here in Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 44. These are the words of Christ. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it on shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brought out of his storeroom new treasure as well as old. Greatly indebted to two other pastors who have helped me to to better grasp what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, Tim Keller in New York City and Alex Watlington, uh, RUF pastor at University of Southern California. It's helped me to see that if we're going to understand what Jesus is saying here about the kingdom, we first need to understand what's Jesus saying about treasure and what's he saying about joy, because only then can we hear what he's saying about the kingdom. 
If you look in verse 44, Jesus starts with one of these two images about somebody finding something of extreme value. In verse 44, we find a man who finds hidden treasure in a field, a most likely literally buried treasure, like we hear about in the tales. Now you have to realize in those days, people first hearing this would realize, well, we've got no banks. They've never heard of banks. There's no safety deposit boxes. They've never heard of a home security system. And so if you've got something of supreme value, everyone's going to know it, and they're going to be after that. So your only chance of keeping it is to bury it somewhere that only you know. But sometimes people would pass away before they have a chance to retrieve it, and the law of the land was finders, keepers. And so imagine one day you're at work, you're a, you're a day laborer, you've got your ox and you've got your plow, and you're, you're working in someone else's field when you, you go along and suddenly it's like thunk. And you hit what you're pretty sure is a rock with your plow, and you hope it's not broken, and you're kind of muttering, rocks. So you're digging out what you think is going to be a rock, and then suddenly you realize, that's no rock. You knock on the wood. You, you hear it's hollow. And then you dust off the dirt. You open it up, and your eyes grow wide like saucers as you see before you treasures like you never imagined. You could retire tomorrow, even if you lived 500 years. And so suddenly you close the box. You look around. You know the law of the land. You put dirt back over it because you know as long as you don't lift it up out of the soil, you know, if you buy that field, it's yours and everything in it. And so now beforehand, you're thinking, okay, my ox and my plow, these are my livelihood. This is my meal ticket. But after you're seeing what's in that box, you're like, okay, so I can sell the ox, I can sell the plow, I don't really need a second set of clothes, sandals are overrated, I can walk everywhere I go, and blisters, eh, eh, I'll deal with that. Or in modern terms, you're like, I can cancel Netflix, I don't really need air conditioning, you know, you only use it a few months of the year, I don't really need heat, electricity bill, what's that? You know, I can live on the streets, I can sell my car, I can take the bus, I can walk if I have to. And if you go to the owner of this plot of land and they say, what's going to cost you if you want to buy this whole field? It's roughly your entire net worth. You're like, deal, let's do this, where do I sign? Because you found something of such extreme value that no matter what it costs to get it, you know it's more than worth it. It's a bargain. And yet Jesus goes on to give us another image of this. To drive the point home, he talks about a pearl merchant, somebody who knows pearls, who knows what's valuable, what's not, and what's priceless. We need to realize this is speaking in a day when pearls were valued the same way we would value diamonds today. There was actually one pearl uh, known to be owned by Cleopatra that was rumored to be worth 25 million denarii. And if you do the math, that's in modern uh, amounts about $4 billion. And Jesus says this merchant who knows pearls found one of such great value. Like the person who found treasure buried in the field, they sell everything they have so they can have it. And I know when we hear these stories, they sound extreme. We're like, who does that? But it's actually not rare. It's actually as common as can be. Because Jesus is simply painting a picture of what we all do in some way. You see, to have something as your treasure means you value it supremely. And for all of us, something is going to be of utmost value. Regardless of what it is, something will always be what we're willing to go to extreme extents in order to have it. When I was in high school, when I was a teenager, what I treasured most, what I valued most 
was your approval. Maybe not your approval because I didn't know you, but, but those of my peers. I wanted to be liked, and as the kid from another town who didn't fit in very well, that wasn't working. But I saw that everybody liked the jocks, the athletes. They never embarrassed themselves, and so I was going to be like that, and I was going to be accepted. Football didn't work, basketball, horrible. But I found out I could run. I, I, could, I could outrun most people, and I could definitely outwork them. So my freshman year, I joined the track team, and I actually got a varsity letter out of the deal. And so in the midst of that, uh, I found that I could train harder than other people. I could get up earlier than other people. Uh, I could ignore those who considered me excessive. I could train through injury. I could train through blizzards. And if it risked being grounded by my parents when obeying their authority meant throwing off my training routine, I was willing to pay that price. I was willing uh, to give my time, my energy, my, my money, my health, and I learned in the process just how much you could give to get what you truly treasured. Because that's how treasure works. Whatever it is, when we think it can be ours, we're willing to give everything that we have to get it. We're willing to sell out for our ultimate treasure, and you can't not treasure something. Something will always be of supreme value to you. You see, whatever it is that we treasure, maybe it's not athletic success, maybe it's academic success, personal freedom and comfort, maybe it's uh, choice, career, our children, relationships, honor, respect, keeping our options open, whatever that is, we find we're willing to give everything for it, to do everything for it, or maybe, if it's comfort, to not do everything for it. And it can look noble. You think of a, a parent, single parent, raising uh, children working three jobs if that's what it takes to keep a roof over their head and doing it gladly. You think of how it can even look romantic. The scriptures tell us a, tro- a story of a guy named Jacob who worked seven years for the right to marry this guy's daughter, Rachel, and then worked another seven years on top of that. And yet sometimes we don't actually see it because it can actually be hidden. The young girl quietly sacrificing her health to keep the figure that gains the attention and the affection of the boys in her class, or the addict secretly engaging in increasingly risking behavior, going further than they ever thought they would go, eventually giving it all for the drug of their choice. It can even be criminal. I was reading this week of a, of a kid who grew up in, uh, in Queens, New York, and as a young child watched their family's business fail. Determined that that would never be their story, they crossed the river, to Manhattan and decided they were going to make it big on Wall Street, even though at the time they were an outsider. And so in the 60s, this kid starts uh, their own investment firm, now no longer a kid, which soon grew to be this lucrative company that eventually everybody would hear about. Over the next few decades, he actually made inroads to where he would become the very heart of the financial club that he once scorned as an outsider. He was appointed the chairman of the NASDAQ index, the vice chairman of the NASD, is industry's self-regulatory body. And after decades of success as a former Wall Street outsider, the name we all know today, Bernie Madoff, saw the markets change. The strategy that he said worked for so many years couldn't produce the same results that had brought him success and the acceptance of the insiders. And he couldn't be seen as a failure. In an interview, Madoff said that he began what at the time he thought would only be a short-term solution. Uh, He's going to mask his losses by paying his old clients money from new clients that came in, what we call a Ponzi scheme. But the markets didn't change the way he said that he expected them to, and this short-term plan 
16 years later, had cost thousands of clients billions of dollars. And when asked why did he do it, he said in one word, ego. He says, I was embarrassed. It was the first time in my life that something hadn't worked the way that I'd planned. He says, put yourself in my shoes. Your whole career, you're on the outside of the club, and then suddenly you have all the big banks and all of their chairmen knocking on your doors saying, can you do this for me? It may not have been so much the money that he treasured, but the status that it brought, even if in the end it would cost thousands their life savings, and even if it meant costing himself his freedom. And yet the thing that drove him to do what he did is the same thing that drives all of us. It's that hope of treasure. Alex Watlington, I love the way that he described it, the pastor in Los Angeles, that the hope of treasure is this. If I can only get fill in the blank, and we have our own ways of filling in that blank, if I can only get fill in the blank, then I will be fulfilled. He says the real treasure hunt that we're on is for anything that will keep us from having a disappointing life. It's the hunt for lasting joy. And if we're honest, we're all on a treasure hunt. We're all on the hunt for lasting joy. But the question is, what if our treasure, what if its promise of joy fails us? When I lived in Las Vegas, I started hearing the name of this this woman a lot, uh, Rhonda Rousey. Uh, She was an Olympian, uh, competed in judo, but by the time I heard about her, uh, she was at the top of the world highest-paid professional in her field. She was a a mixed martial arts fighter, tough girl, UFC champion, getting paid more than any men in her industry to show up and beat somebody up in a ring with millions of people watching around the world. She was on magazine covers not only because of her athletic ability, but because of her natural beauty. Endorsement deals came left and right. She was in her 20s, at her peak, at her prime, world-famous, And then the unthinkable happened. She lost. Ellen DeGeneres was interviewing her earlier this month and and asked her the question everybody wanted to know, what was your mindset after you lost that fight? The toughest woman on the planet, by many people's measure, started choking back tears as she says, honestly, my thought in the medical room I was sitting in the corner and I was like, what am I anymore if I'm not this? Literally, I was sitting there, she says, thinking about killing myself. And that exact second, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? No one gives a care about me anymore without this. The treasured possession was lost. And with it, joy, weeping, self-loathing, lost identity, all of those followed. And all of it echoes what Jesus is talking about in his next parable. Beginning in verse 44, Jesus tells a parable about a net, a net catching fish. Picture two boats coming towards the shore of a large lake, dragging a, a large net between them that would catch everything all the way down to the surface. It's a crude way to fish. You know, you, you catch the fish that you're after, but you also catch a lot of other stuff you, you didn't really want. Good fish you can eat, bad fish you don't. Old broken sandals, old robes, old tires, discarded Rams jerseys, all sorts of stuff. Everything that people threw in a lake, it's coming up. 
because by a nature, a net catches anything in its path. And Jesus is saying that all sorts of people are going to get caught up in his kingdom. Jesus describes some of them as good and some of them as bad, some of them as wicked, some of them as righteous. And how do we actually tell the difference? How do we know which one we are? Well, if you're fish, it's easy. Because, you know, for Jewish fishermen, if you had scales and you had fins as a fish, those were considered clean fish. They were good fish. You could eat those. But if you didn't have scales and fin, you were considered an unclean fish. You were a bad fish. You were discarded. You were thrown out. But what about people? What's the criteria? Well, Jesus has been talking about treasure. The thing that will give anything to have the thing that we'll willingly lose our identity in, the thing that we tie our identity to. Tim Keller uh, gives a great definition of sin when he says it's finding our ultimate identity, our joy and our significance in anything other than God. It's breaking what Jesus called the first and the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength. Because if we're honest, we don't break any of God's commandments. We don't do anything truly wicked without first breaking this first commandment, without first holding something else as our ultimate treasure, something other than God himself. You see, what separates the wicked from the righteous in the end is what they treasured in this life. And what happens when the value of that treasure is tested by fire? Jesus uses that image in verse 50, the image of a fiery furnace. You see, fire was a common image in their day of of judgment because it tests the contents of whatever is subject to it. And what can't stand the heat ends up disintegrating, ends up being lost. You might say that human beings are all on a trajectory unto eternity where we ultimately become like what we treasure and worship, that our fate is tied to what we ultimately treasure in this life. And if what we treasure most is eternal, if it's loving, if it endured beyond the grave, then then so shall we. But if what we treasure most is finite, if it's loveless, if it can't love us back, if it's cold, if it's perishing, then it will come to ruin. And we and the identity that we've based on it will come to the same fate. Jesus describes the reality that we experience in verse 50. First is weeping. Grief, because in the end, what we've treasured, the false identity, ultimately fails us. But he also describes it as gnashing of teeth, this this picture of grief, but also anger. Think of like a cartoon character, like an anime figure, flying at them, like teeth gritted, like, like like they're out to get you. Anger, and that's the image Jesus uses. Maybe angry at the false treasure. Enraged at it because it was unable to deliver what it promised you. Maybe angry at yourself for trusting it. Maybe angry at God. You see, this isn't just what you experience on the other side of the grave, but in many ways we often experience foretastes of that in this life. That's what Ronda Rousey was experiencing. Because if we're honest, all of us are ultimately made to treasure something outside of ourselves supremely, something that will always be our ultimate source of joy and worship. And because of that, we'll actually find ourselves willing to do anything, to give everything to have it, to give everything, to try to get joy. And Jesus is telling us in these parables that the kingdom of heaven actually, for those who find it, they actually experience something radically different. What's Jesus teaching us about joy? 
in verse 44, Jesus says that when the man found it, when he found the treasure, he hid it again, and then, in his joy, present tense, already has it, in his joy, he went and sold all of it to buy that field. You see, whether it was Bernie Madoff selling people a bill of goods, or, or Jacob selling himself for seven years for the love of Rachel, they all did it in hope of finding the joy that their treasure was promising them. But those who see the kingdom of heaven don't sell out in hope of getting joy. Jesus says they already have joy. And that's what leads them to sell, to give everything for the kingdom. So a pastor friend of mine in Las Vegas, Phil Glassmeyer, uh, put it this way. He says, if you've ever gone into a pawn shop, if you've ever needed to go into a pawn shop, you know it's not like the reality shows where anybody is smiling. Nobody is smiling in there. You're standing in that line because you're in desperation going to hawk a family heirloom uh, or maybe your wedding ring in order to pay the rent because you've got to pay the bills, to, to pay a debt, maybe even to feed an addiction. Nobody standing in that line is smiling. This last week I was reading about a pawn shop in Kansas City which has seen literally thousands of Super Bowl rings and other championship rings sold at its shop, including two Heisman trophies, a Grammy Award, and on this Oscar Sunday has even seen an Oscar, which one time somebody held proudly in front of millions watching, sold, pawned at this little store that you probably don't even notice when you drive by it. Nobody trining upon something there, is happy to be there. But Jesus is saying the person who sees the kingdom of heaven is the guy running to the pawn shop, smiling. Because he knows what he's found. So they don't sell out everything in hope of getting and finding joy. They sell out because they've already found it. And what have they found? Jesus calls it a kingdom. Something that's defined by the rule and the reign of a king which means to treasure a kingdom actually means coming under the rule and reign of that king. And in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is that king. That's what the people recognize. That's what Christ, what Messiah actually refers to. It's just this word that means the royal anointed one of God. And in Luke 19, when Jesus is entering Jerusalem, the people get it and their response says it all. When they said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, the joy that Jesus is speaking about comes from seeing the kingdom. It comes from seeing Jesus as the king. In our modern world, many think that, well, joy can't come that way because joy can only come when you have your own personal freedom, when no one's your boss, when you're your own authority and no one else tells you what you got to do. But Bob Dylan saw through all of that when he wrote the song, you got to serve somebody. Someone or something else is always going to fill that role in your, in your life. You see, we all have something that we treasure enough to do anything for or to not do anything for. And when we do, that's what actually becomes our sovereign. That's what becomes our ruler. That becomes our king. That becomes our God. We'll find ourselves willing to do anything for them. But sometimes we don't even know that's going on because of how we feel in the midst of it. We're literally, quite literally, enthralled by that which we treasure. I was looking up the word, and I actually found out that the word enthrall we use in English comes from uh, a term used in Scandinavian lands, the Viking era, uh, thrall. It was a word that means a slave, 
somebody who doesn't do their own bidding, but someone who does the bidding of their master, one whose identity has been lost in the one who has literally enthralled them. You see, we think that we're actually freely seeking what's going to keep us from having a disappointing life, when in reality we're actually its slave. Rebecca Pippert puts it this way in one of her books. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. That was my reality. She goes on, We do not control ourselves. We're controlled by the Lord of our lives. And someone or something is always going to fill that role in our lives. The question we need to ask is, in the end, is it worth it? Are they worth it? Is it worth coming under the rule of our treasure? Are they actually worthy of that rule over our lives? So the question isn't if we'll give everything for our treasure. The question is which treasure we're going to give everything for. Which treasure is going to rule us? Because if the joy Jesus is talking about only comes from his rule and reign over our life, we've got a question we've got to ask. Jesus, what kind of king are you? What might I be getting myself into? Who are you? What kind of king is Jesus? Well, in the Old Testament, uh, God warned the people of trying to make a king for themselves out of Saul. He says, here's what's going to happen if you do that. Your king is going to tax you heavily and then send your sons into battle to die for him. And with time, that's exactly what happened to Israel and Judah with their kings. But the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, actually works differently. See, rather than sending our sons to fight his battles and die for him, God sent his son to fight our greatest battle and to die for us. See, rather than asking them to pay the greatest price, Jesus himself paid the greatest price, paid with his own blood, gave his life, having lived the life we should have lived, and then dying the death that our sins deserved. And if you see that, if you see the treasure of Christ, it can't leave you unchanged. And Jesus gives us this parable to show us the type of response that it requires. He says in verse 44, it's like a man who isn't just buying a spot in the field, the one-by-one-foot square where the treasure is found, but buying the whole field because he knows that even if it means I'm getting all this other stuff with it, it's somehow worth it. And maybe you're saying, hey, hey Keith, wait a minute. You're, you're not talking about that other stuff, are you? Uh, the stuff that can come with being a Christian that you don't exactly sign up for? You mean people watching a march of some church in Kansas that will remain nameless who's picketing a military funeral and protesting and saying God hates somebody and thinking that that might actually be what I've become? You mean persecution? You mean working in a place where your coworkers tell you that, yeah, if you're a Christian, that's all fine, but make sure none of the other faculty hear about that until after you've got tenure, until after they've decided your fate? You mean family rejection, knowing that at the very least you might be seen as going through a religious phase and, and possibly even rejected by those you owned because now you've identified with a, quote, religion, which they just can't respect. You mean all of these things might come with following Jesus. You mean something might actually be part of my life that I wouldn't have voluntarily chosen in and of itself. You mean that might be part of following Jesus? Yeah. That might. That can come with buying the whole field, 
because you realize that the treasure in it is worth anything if it means it can be yours. Tim Keller talks about the part of that field that most of us would probably do without. He says, wait a minute, so you're meaning that I now might read Scripture as God's word, and it means I'm giving God permission to tell me that I'm wrong, rather than telling the Scriptures that they're wrong. Keller puts it this way, either I have evaluative authority over the Scriptures, or they have that authority over me. And this is very telling, because whatever we struggle with when it comes to Scripture's authority of our, of our lives, whatever point that is that we struggle, that probably is simply revealing the point where it's rivaling a treasure that we already want, that we already value supremely, whether it's an ideology, whether that rival treasure is a behavior that we don't want to do or that we do want to do, a cultural value assumption or something else. If that's our struggle, the way that we struggle perhaps with Scripture is that point where we're actually struggling because we're wanting to value something else supremely. And God is saying, no, treasure me. You see, we need to ask ourselves, do we come to Jesus as somebody who's useful to help us get what we really treasure? Or do we actually come to Jesus as the king that is worthy of our treasure? That's how we can tell we've actually heard Jesus and what he's saying about the kingdom. If we don't see in Jesus something that's worth selling out for, that's worth giving up control for, something that actually gives joy rather than, you know, empty promises that say, here's a carrot, I'm going to dangle it in front of you, run on your hamster wheel, you're never going to get there, but keep on running. If we don't see something worth truly treasuring, then perhaps we haven't really heard Jesus. Perhaps we haven't really seen the kingdom that he's speaking of. Because if having Christ as our treasure means getting all these other things in as well, do we really believe that he's worth it? Or as Helen Rosevere put it, as Greg talked about a few weeks ago, do we really believe Jesus is worthy? What Jesus is saying to us is essentially this. When we've seen the kingdom, when we've found that treasure that he's talking about here, the way that we know is that whatever it might cost us, it seems like a bargain. We're saying, where do I sign? Deal. It was Jim Elliott who lost his life in service to the Aka Indians in South America who said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And what motivated him was having found in Christ the endless supply of treasure we see in verse 52, like a storeroom from which both old and new treasures come, an endless supply of joy. And yet each of us come across this treasure of the kingdom in different ways. For some of us, it's like the first parable. uh, Buried treasure, something that we weren't exactly looking for, but we just stumbled upon it. Maybe you saw Christ ruling over someone else's heart, over their life. And you saw, because of that, forgiveness where forgiveness didn't seem possible. You saw peace that defied a person's circumstances. You saw lives changed right in front of you. And you had to find out, where does that come from? And how do I get that? Though maybe like me, you were actually seeking another treasure. And Jesus surprised you. When I was 13, somebody invited that outcast kid to their youth group. And I was just looking for something fun to do on a Friday night to not be alone. And I actually found in a community of Jesus followers something far beyond what I ever imagined. Jesus Sandoval 
was a businessman who in Las Vegas knew one of his contacts and heard that she went to church, so decided, well, I'm going to go to her church because they've got a lot of people there and I can make more business contacts. And without expecting it, he went there looking to grow his business and instead found a God who could actually cover his shame. Scottish archaeologist Sir William Ramsey spent 15 years in archaeological work in modern-day Turkey, eventually became what was considered the foremost a scholar and historian and archaeologist of that part of the world of the 20th century. Fifteen years, and if you asked him why at the beginning, he was dead set on showing that all those things in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, those letters written by Paul, that they were all forgeries. And he spent 15 years to prove them wrong. And after 15 years, unexpectedly found the authors to be what he called historians of the first rank and later found himself a follower of Jesus. Dawson Trotman, the founder of The Navigators, one of the ten largest missions organizations in the world, treasured a girl. And so when she went to church, he went to church. When her Sunday school was memorizing scriptures, well, she was, well he was going to memorize scriptures with them. And then the next week, and the next week, and somehow he was the only person who actually memorized those verses in that class. And yet a few weeks later, he found in the verses that he memorized the Christ that they spoke of to be a greater treasure than the girl he first followed to that church. Maybe like these people, you first came here to Memorial seeking another treasure and instead have found something that you didn't expect. But maybe you are more like the pearl merchant. You knew what you were searching for. You needed peace. You longed for a source of justice in the world. You needed to find a moral seriousness without condemning attitudes. You needed to find a way to actually selflessly sacrifice. You needed to see in yourself a heart of mercy and humility, and you found it in Christ greater than any other source, and maybe to your surprise, found that it actually comes when Christ rules in your heart. Many of you heard the story of a a woman who experienced this. Her name is Mary Jane Townsend. She was an escaped slave who came to St. Louis to work as a cook uh, for a Christian family. You see, she was now free. She could go where she wants. She could do what she wants. She now had her own time and her own money to spend on whatever she treasured most. But she was also a Christian. Jesus was her king. Jesus was her treasure. And so with the blessing of Memorial's elders, she spent newly found free time to establish the Leonard Avenue Sunday School so that other escaped slaves could learn to read and could learn to write, but could also learn of the hope found in Christ. She was instrumental as that Sunday School later grew into what was now Berea Presbyterian Church. And all along, during this time, up until her 70s, as far as we know, she labored scraping together everything from her meager wages until by the time she was in her 70s, still working, she accumulated over $3,000 to go towards buying a mansion, a manse, a place that a pastor would live in that could draw and attract the best Princeton graduate seminary students to come and pastor her new fledgling congregation so other African-American freed slaves fleeing to St. Louis could also know the treasure of Christ. And when you look at a woman whose life looked like that, you have to ask, where did she learn that? She learned it from Jesus. What's your treasure? Is it eternal or perishing? 
Does it actually lead you to take from others in your attempt to find it or to give to others to sell it all in your joy? As Alex Watlington put it, the sign of true treasure is this, that you can endure anything for it with joy and with love. That's what we see supremely in the heart of Jesus Christ, whose scripture says, out of love and for the joy set before him endured the cross. The cross, the place where the sins of all of those who had trust in Jesus were placed on him, the place where he was punished, the place where he was crushed, the place where he had to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? He laid aside the privileges of his deity, his unbroken intimacy with the Father and his very life on the cross. He sold it all. To gain what? You. Jesus gave it all for you. His treasure. So that he could become your treasure. Let me pray for us. Father, we come here today as those who are made to treasure, who are made to value something supremely, who are made to worship, made to give it all for the thing that we believe will delight our hearts the most. We come here today, many of us in confession, knowing that there are other lesser treasures that we have gone further than we ever expected to serve. And many of us today grieving over realizing that those promises were empty. Father, we ask that you would show us this morning in Christ someone of supreme value, someone who treasures us, who went to the cross so that we in turn may treasure him, find our delight in him, find our satisfaction in him, motivated by Christ's love for us. Be with us even as we come to this table as another reminder of your love, of what Jesus did to sell it all, to have us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.